electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Mike Santoli. Kramer is the morning off. Dow S&P looking for their third straight weekly gain. Futures are a bit mixed this morning. NASDAQ looking uh, are lagging as yields uh, take a step higher. PPI runs hot, up 4-2 year-on-year, as you heard Rick talk about after that weird delay in the data this morning. Our roadmap begins with Boeing's Max Headache, the company warning airliners of a potential electrical issue on some of the jets. Plus, vote counting to resume this hour, but the odds for a new Amazon worker union, well, they appear to be facing a significant uphill battle. And the reopening trade, we're going to talk with the CEO of Snap-on about that company's post-COVID recovery. Carl. Guys, a lot to get to this morning uh, in Kramer's absence. I guess, Mike, uh, maybe we do start with some of these inflation numbers. Uh, obviously, base effects are uh, making the year-on-year data confusing for many, but 4-2 will get your attention. Yeah. 1% month-on-month will get your attention. At the wholesale level, I guess the question will be, at what point does it start getting passed down? Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody, because of statistical reasons, because of those base effects, braced for some hot numbers. Also, just anecdotally, everyone's focused on lumber, on bottlenecks in production, on trade issues, on what's been happening in metal. So there's no surprise that there's a lot of, uh, of kind of upward pressure on prices at the wholesale level. It's been uh, the case for a while right now. Then the question is, in the context of Fed official after Fed official coming out and telling everybody we don't care uh, about, you know, this kind of <laughs> what's supposed to be a near term bump in inflation. Do not focus on it because we're not focused on it. And that challenges, you know, the market's ability to kind of, you know, think about two things at once on two separate tracks. And I, again, this is also happening, you know, with the Treasury yields having come back a fair bit in the last several days and people kind of taking comfort in more of that stability quality trade, not so much the cyclical uh, trade. So I think it's a little noisy uh, at this point. I don't know if it's anyone's really panicking over it, but it does show you that the market's probably going to have to, you know, get over these potential scares or these these little interruptions of the uh, this kind of general glide path that we've been on in terms of the macro. Yeah, David, that that sort of ties into what uh, Powell said at this IMF panel yesterday on employment. And that is, um, you know, a a 900,000 print on jobs is great, but we want to see a string of these things before we start communicating that policy is going to change. Right, which is why they uh, continue to say policy will not change and make it very clear uh, and say, you know, pay no attention here, Mike, you can do that. But the question is whether the bond market will listen. Uh, You mentioned, of course, and we take a look at that 10 year yield Right now, uh, having moved down from those highs that we saw 
What was the correlation between, and I don't even know, what, above 1.7 or wherever we may have been and the performance of the S&P, Mike, so we can sort of remind our viewers in terms of that relationship? Yeah, what's interesting is that the S&P as a whole has not really shown a lot of reaction to either that run to highs uh, in the the, uh, 10-year yield or the pullback. It's been about what kinds of stocks have worked in the S&P. So this yield uh, backup that we got from mid-1.7s, down to closer to 1.6, have coincided with people rediscovering, you know, Apple and Microsoft yesterday were both up like a percent and a half uh, for no reason. It was just those are kind of the bond proxies when yields calm down and when people are looking for quality and defense as opposed to cyclical uh, acceleration type plays. And I think that that's that rotation has been almost perfectly scripted. And, you know, you don't know if you can expect it to continue that way. But the overall S&P has just been kind of grinding higher, even as most stocks have uh, have pulled back. If you look at the kind of pure reopening uh, type plays, they've pulled back a fair bit in the last couple of weeks. And the overall market has not uh, not really had a hiccup. So, you know, this whole march higher in yields, it's something, Carl, that we keep saying market's going to have to figure out what its own pain threshold is on that in, in aggregate. It doesn't seem to be one seven. Uh, necessarily. But, you know, at some point along the way, it probably uh, uses that as an excuse to, uh, to to have a little bit of a gut check. Yeah. Interesting, uh, David, you know, your question about what stocks are going to work from here on out. JPM's got a pretty good note. Um, uh, Dubrovko says that March might have marked the end of the momentum un- unwind. We agree the bulk of the momentum sell off is done. But we do believe value has more room to run. And clearly, every indication that we get, and we'll talk some more this morning about the uh, reopening signals that we're getting at Disneyland and New York City uh, and hotels. Uh, Win, of course, on Mad with Jim last night. Maybe that does uh, get you a little more uh, of a kick in, the, in those value reopening names. Yeah, the old value names, of course, that continued debate as to whether they will ever really see a sort of resurgence beyond what we've seen in growth. I mean, I would note uh, that we are up over 9%, a little more than a little roughly three and a half months into the year on the S&P, and the NASDAQ is lagging. So those growth names, some of them are still lagging, Mike. But, you know, still much unclear in terms of whether that value trade can really sustain itself. Right. It's still a show me uh, situation in terms of how much ground has already been made up. What's really I found interesting about that J.P. Morgan note, too, is is just the way you can kind of slice these style categories and what you're actually betting on when you're betting on something that we call momentum or we call value. And one of the issues is that momentum, as it gets measured and, and played, in the market became very much like value and cyclical because those were the stocks that had raced ahead. And so they automatically start qualifying as momentum and large cap Nasdaq stocks lost their status as momentum plays in these factor breakdowns. And so you've almost kind of liberated the market from that, you know, growth is Nasdaq, you know, fang and value is energy and financials and nothing else. And momentum is somewhere kind of in flux in between. So uh, part of it is, you know, tail wagging the dog and how are we going to describe these things? But it sort of does tell you why you've gotten this pickup in the Nasdaq names recently, because they were not overextended. Uh, they represent a little more defensive in quality. They had lagged, and therefore you can, you know, feel like you're not buying them at the highs. And in a way, they're almost, Carl, orphaned growth. Uh, yes, they're growth, but they're not necessarily impressive this year on uh, earnings growth. But over the longer term, maybe they will be. 
Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. I mean, it really is. Uh, someone could easily argue that Carnival is a momentum stock. Yeah. Uh, we do have an upgrade this right. morning over at uh, CS. They go to outperform uh, target of 40 as they see sailing happening in mid to late summer. And speaking of the reopening, we mentioned Wynn, uh, talking about how they're going to manage their own workers, talking about how uh, business and bookings are trending in Vegas. This is what the CEO told Jim on Mad last night. Las Vegas needs airlift to get back to beating 2019. But what we're already seeing, drive-in traffic is up over 2019 this last month. Our call volumes are back to 2019 levels. Conventions, we booked five tech conventions for later this year, um, just last week. David, I thought it was interesting how we're seeing some of these leisure companies talk about testing and vaccines of their own employees. In Wynn's case, um, they're going to ask you to get the vaccine. They're not going to make you get the vaccine. And if you don't, then you're going to have to get tested. Yeah, it's it's going to be very interesting to see over the next few months how that all shakes out in terms of what companies are going to ask of their employees, particularly those like that, where you're welcoming guests on a regular basis and want people to feel as at ease as possible. Uh, Carl, um, Vegas is important. They seem to be quite positive in terms of the of the return there. Uh, of business, but we'll be watching closely as are, of course, you know, we're going to follow this morning as well. What some of the uh, Florida suing the CDC on behalf of cruise ship uh, companies, uh, because this question continues to be what is going to be fully allowed? What is going to be mandated in terms of employees? And even if you say, OK, all our employees have to be vaccinated, is the CDC going to say, OK, you're good to go? Yeah, I wish I wish Jim were here, Mike, uh, because yesterday on this very show, uh, he thought that there would be some legal action uh, between the, the cruise lines and the CDC. I don't know if he counted on the governor and the state getting involved, which, by the way, raises additional questions about what kind of standing Florida has in a case like this. But clearly uh, that showdown has gotten spicier. No, without a doubt, um, it, it, it remains a very large, conspicuous question as to why it seems to be this very specific treatment of uh, of cruise lines. What's interesting about, you know, you mentioned that upgrade that Carnival got today, Carl, is they're kind of assuming, what, mid to late summer that, that, that you know, kind of cruising uh, comes back. They know they're not saying they have any kind of an edge in deciding that that's when approvals are going to come down, but that that's the way it seems like uh, things are tacking. And by the way, too, you know, this price target that, that goes out there, $40 for Carnival, is based on 14 times 2023 earnings for Carnival, um, because obviously it's a long road back and they've they've issued a ton of stock and, and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, this was a stock that didn't necessarily have a huge premium, uh, Carl, even when things were were kind of quiet and great. So uh, it tells you what you have to do to stretch to, uh, to, to to see much upside in a stock like this after all the issuance. Yeah. Guys, uh, I want to get to sort of the setup regarding industrials this morning because we got upgrades of Honeywell, got upgrades of Raytheon, got a price target increase on GE. Uh, but Boeing is going to fly in the face of that on this news about the MAX. Let's get to Phil LeBeau. Morning, Phil. Carl, we have a little more information regarding what's happening with the Boeing 737 MAX. And basically, let me reset the table in terms of what Boeing announced this morning. It is telling 16 customers... 16 airlines that they should temporarily ground some 737 maxes. What maxes are we talking about? Those that have been delivered since the plane was ungrounded by the FAA last November. 
What's happened is a change in the production uh, has indicated that there could be a potential electrical issue in the power backup control unit. And as a result, Boeing is telling its customers, look, shut these planes down until you can check it out to make sure that this production issue, and my understanding is it has to do with uh, how something is uh, attached or fastened within the backup power control unit, that it is properly uh, attached and is uh, up to the way that it should be in terms of how we want this uh, unit to be functioning. So as a result, you are having these airlines temporarily ground these maxes to do these checks, which could take anywhere from a few hours to a couple of days. Southwest issuing a statement this morning saying that it has pulled 30 737 MAX 8s from its schedule. They'll be able to replace those planes in the schedule with backup aircraft. So the impact on the schedule uh, today and tomorrow will be limited at Southwest. American Airlines pulling 17 737 MAXs from its schedule so that it can do the check as well. By the way, the FAA has just issued a statement saying that it is uh, aware of what Boeing has uh, issued and is working with Boeing and with airlines to make sure that uh, the process is followed. But again, what you're looking at here is a temporary grounding of some 737 MAXs, not all of them, but some of them, the ones that have been delivered post-grounding in November. And this grounding, this temporary grounding, if you will, Carl, it's expected to last, again, anywhere from a few hours to a couple of days. Carl, back to you. Phil, Phil, thank I'll you. Take, um, yeah, I'll I'm, take it, I'm just Phil. thinking. Yep. Uh, apologies, uh, Phil. Uh, <laughs> David, it reminds me of the, the many times Gary Kelly has been on our air. I look back, uh, July 2019, he came on Squawk in the Street and said, I want your viewers to understand we have one issue, and it's the max. And then you had Calhoun come on uh, some months later say, we let them down. So that relationship, at least in the last couple of years, has been fraught. Uh, without a doubt. And it is still under some pressure, one would expect, uh, as things come back to some level of, of, of normalcy. Listen, you know, it's uh, when I think of Boeing at this point in particular, we're only a couple of weeks away from the anniversary of the $25 billion worth of bonds that the company sold. It was a seminal moment there, if you remember, of course, because it did mean that the company potentially was not going to need to raise further funds at that point. And there was a lot of concern about Boeing, and it did show the health of the capital markets and coming to the aid of so many companies that desperately needed it. So we'll be, we'll be uh, uh, I think it was the 30th of April last year, $25 billion for Boeing. Obviously, a different part of this overall story. Another story we've been watching closely here, of course, is Amazon workers at an Alabama warehouse. They appear to be on the way to rejecting unionization with about Half of the approximately 3,200 ballots counted. So far, the tally shows workers voting against the union by more than two to one. But there are also hundreds of contested ballots that are being challenged by both sides. Carl, an important test here, of course, as you might imagine, people lining up on both sides of the political spectrum in terms of union versus not. Um, I would only add Amazon itself and something that perhaps we haven't, even though we've mentioned it many times, haven't focused on quite enough added half a million employees in 2020. It's still such a staggering number of people. It's almost hard to process. Uh, yeah, it's, there's some data this week, David, that uh, large companies in this country actually added net jobs um, 
in the course of the pandemic, a net addition of jobs at large companies. We obviously know they took share from mom and pops. But a lot of that, Mike, would not have been possible without one company. And that's Amazon. Yeah, Amazon and, and I guess probably other uh, essential retailers as well. It's a, an amazing economic force. And, David, it, does it completely just remind you of the life cycle of Walmart in terms of the skirmishes yes. about unionization, yes. treatment of workers, uh, whether they're putting uh, small companies out of business and, and the whole thing? And, and meanwhile, it just remains this sort of juggernaut winning market share uh, along the way. What's also interesting about this is, as, as you know, uh, kind of consequential as this union vote might be longer term one way or the other is the pressure that's just been building outside of any kind of labor movement for $15 uh, minimums and and basically the upward pressure on wages already, even without the, the unionization of the company. Take a break here. We'll get to some of the calls that we mentioned, including the upgrades of Raytheon and Honeywell. Uh, GE, UBS goes to 17. Got some calls on the airlines as well, separate from the Max. We're back in a minute. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, it's another Friday and an opportunity for us to take a look at uh, SPACs, something that we had done uh, quite frequently, of course, during the course of the frenzy in SPAC filings, offerings uh, and deals. That has slowed a bit, but there's no doubt that they continue to capture the imagination of certain investors and certainly have um, contributed to significant fee generation from the investment banks, both from the underwriting IPO side and from the merger side. Uh, And that continues to be the case. The biggest news, though, perhaps came uh, recently from the SEC, which, as we've all uh, discussed, certainly is taking a closer look uh, at SPACs from a number of different perspectives. Uh, One being, of course, the fees uh, and the responsibility of the sponsors. 
and something we've talked about a great deal, the projections that come along with uh, these offerings typically, because remember, these are projections in a merger document, not in an S1, and therefore they can look at things and say things that you can't typically do as a straight IPO. Remember, the IPO happens for the SPAC, then the merger is done. What does the SEC say? Well, if we do not treat the DSPAC transaction as the real IPO, our attention may be focused on the wrong place and potentially problematic forward-looking information may be disseminated without appropriate safeguards. Sort of goes to some of the things that we've made light of in case of, uh, well, we're going to trade at eight times 26 revenues or 15 times 26 EBITDA. These are dates that are still quite far out. These are companies oftentimes that are still relatively speculative uh, in nature. But of course, what had been a fire hose of filings and offerings has slowed to I guess more of a garden hose. It's not a trickle by any means, but it's certainly not what it was. Take a look at some of the numbers and some of the things that we're seeing in a cooling market. We have IPOs that have fallen below the $10 trust value. We have deal announcements that have been slowing down, of course. And even our own SPAC index uh, that we track here, where pre-deal is down 18%, just uh, in, let's call it, in the last six or so weeks. Um, and you can take a look at the numbers backs below 10, five days after their IPO. I think we have that chart as well. It's a pretty significant number. Um, and the numbers themselves are still quite significant as well as you take a look at the SPAC 50 there. Uh, you got 432 that are still out there looking for a deal. There's, by the way, the number that are trading below 10. Uh, you've got 240 that have filed but are not yet public. You've got 304 IPOs that have already taken place this year. Now, just imagine that number in any other year, of course. And uh, they've raised almost $100 billion. So we're still watching it all very closely. Seven SPAC IPOs this week, 11 uh, filed to go public. But I have also noticed, guys, interestingly, yesterday you had a SPAC come with no pipe. I hadn't seen that before. Uh, today, there are some filing where the trust value is $10.10 where the warrants are exercised at 15, not 11.50. So there are things being done to try to change the nature of, of what they look like, perhaps make them a bit more um, enticing to investors because things might have certainly slowed down. Not stopped, but slowed down. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned how much has been raised, almost 100 billion this year, uh, 300 IP. That, that's more than was all of last year, just year to date. Uh, in 2021. So I wonder if it's going to be the first quarter of 2021 is going to be this vintage of SPACs that's going to be a real test case for, you know, how reliant this whole model was on those projections. I once did a, you know, went back to, you know, the most recent 40 SPACs and looked at their five-year projections. They were so talking about a cumulative average, uh, average annual growth rate of like 100% a year in revenues for five years. So, you know, how much of this uh, game, Carl, has been dependent on exactly those projections that are now under scrutiny? Yeah, and a pretty nice uh, pipeline of IPO stories uh, on the tape today, including Impossible and uh, Didi Chuxing. We'll take a break here. Final day of the uh, trading week in a moment. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. 
Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Not every day you get a brand new show on CNBC, but beginning Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, tune in for the premiere of Tech Check, where we will cover all the bases on all things tech. Show will be anchored from both the East and the West Coasts. On day one, Uber's Dara Khosrowshahi will join us. We'll a lot to talk with Dara about. Hope you'll join us. Tech Check, Monday morning at 11. We'll be right back. The recovery, though, here remains uneven and incomplete. The burden is still falling falling on lower-income workers. The unemployment rate in the bottom quartile is still 20%. There's still 8.5 million people out of work. Uh, and this, this unevenness that we're, that we're talking about is a very serious issue. Um, uh, viruses are no respecters of borders. And until the world really is vaccinated, uh, we're all going to be at risk of, uh, of new mutations, and uh, we won't be able to really uh, uh, resume activity uh, with confidence all around the world. That's the Fed chair yesterday on the recovery at yesterday's virtual event presented by the IMF, moderated by our own Sarah Eisen. Mike, interesting comments uh, from Powell talking about the unevenness of the domestic recovery, but also this notion of when do you really know the pandemic is not going to come back to bite you again? Uh, Bullard had the same comments yesterday. And I did see a piece earlier in the week on the tape that argued that herd immunity globally is probably not something we're going to get for 22 months Right. And, you know, with a Fed that has already been very clear about saying it's going to err on the side of staying more easy than not and wait for the the actual economic data and the full employment evidence and even inflation running hot for a while before they try to anticipate it. It's not a proactive Fed anymore. They're not going to assume the end of the pandemic or mission accomplished with uh, the economic recovery until it's right in front of us. Yeah. There's the opening bell, guys. Obviously, uh, final trading day of the week as we see Brett fill in a look at the NYSE and the NASDAQ as well. Um, we uh, did talk about briefly some of these upgrades in the industrial space, David. Uh, RTX uh, getting an upgrade, uh, Honeywell getting an upgrade as well. Just basically the general notion that some of these industrials are really laser poised for the exact part of the economy that is coming back to life. Yeah. And one wonders whether, you know, and how they will deal with this pickup potentially in inflation. I mean, back to the Powell conversation as well. You know, it's also costs a lot these days, Mike, to to transport goods. That's something else that seems to be adding to uh, to inflation fears. As you take a look at some of the Dow gainers right now, Honeywell, is, as, as Carl just said, one of those names that uh, that is doing quite well. Uh, uh, biggest best performer so far in the first minute here in, in, in the Dow. But these rising um, transportation costs, Mike, I don't know how that figures into it. We've all talked about, you know, the costs that, that keep going up in terms of just getting things from the ports uh, and, and through there. Um, but spiking prices for shipping uh, and those commodity prices as well yeah, uh, that continue to move higher, you know, interesting. No, it's definitely kind of a high friction industrial uh, economy right now. Uh, everything going on supply chain wise. I think the, the bull case that's laid out, for example, with Honeywell, first of all, it's mostly capital goods. You know, they, you talk about PPI going up a lot. Well, these are the guys collecting a lot of those prices uh, on things that are inputs uh, to, to other uh, other companies. And uh, what's also interesting is that both of those uh, upgrades of Honeywell refer to mid to late cycle dynamics. Now, these phases can last a couple, three years, uh, but it's a, a good reminder that 
as much as we're thinking we're less than a year off of the low of a, of a flash recession, it's already looking like there's been so much progress in terms of the comeback in some industrial sectors, manufacturing, what ISM looks like, that, uh, that all of a sudden we're talking about mid-cycle, late cycle, and, and we're maybe six or eight months away from the whole conversation being, wow, tough comps uh, next year for a lot of earnings in terms of growth, and, and boy, it's going to be some fiscal drag because we're probably not going to get another $3 trillion in, uh, you know, in, in spendable uh, fiscal uh, you know, help. It, it, so it's, it, it, it happens fast, potentially, Carl. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, also UBS, David, I wondered what you thought. They go to $17, reiterate a buy. Um, the, we expect the turnaround to result in a simpler industrial company with high single-digit FCF to sales. Uh, they say their earlier piece had said, is this a turnaround masterclass or is it a dead cat bounce? And after that uh, Outlook meeting, which you reported on earlier, uh, they believe that the, the former is, in fact, true, given the evidence. Um, interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a great deal to add on that, Carl. I'm, you know, it's funny, uh, speaking of UBS, and I think of, uh, of CS right now, which got downgraded today, different, very different area, of course, but we're still, still dealing with the uh, outcome of the uh, Archegos craziness uh, and the impact on uh, any number of these companies, but in particular Credit Suisse, which again, stock of which was downgraded. You can see it's down another 3%. One does wonder whether some sort of deal with UBS one day might occur there, uh, given all the problems that that company continues to have in terms of managing risk and not getting out of its own way. And of course, Mike losing $4.7 billion, uh, largely through uh, Prime Broker, also related to uh, the uh, Greensill relationship uh, as well. Um, yeah. They would go together fairly well, UBS and Credit Suisse, one might imagine. It's not as though that hasn't been thought of many times in the past, but I do right. know there are quite a few employees there who perhaps are getting a bit frustrated, getting stock, doing well in their particular area of the company, only to find that another area of the company has not done well at all. Yeah, you would wonder, I mean, just in terms of... Uh, <laughs> It, does it matter, you know, domestic Swiss politics, whether you have one or two uh, mega banks or not? Um, also, though, that downgrade of Credit Suisse, I mean, you know, coming from Morgan Stanley, um, you know, obviously different parts of, of both firms uh, and all that. But it's a little bit rich uh, to, to see that happening. And just bigger picture, uh, I think what's fascinating is that the market kind of took the Archegos liquidation and wondered if there were other shoes to drop and looked at the ramifications and how it was filtering through various stock prices. And it just served as another one of these excuses for a little three to five percent pullback in the S&P. People stop, look around. OK, maybe there's no other you know, body's going to bob up to the surface and we're OK here. So it's happened each of the last three months. You had the, the, the kind of the arc complex of stocks, the SaaS stocks and all the hyper growth uh, type things fall apart. Prior to that, it was the GameStop, you know, Melvin Capital thing. So does this mean that, you know, uh, we're getting inured to, to things or it's these nice little checks on risk appetites that uh, enable the cycle to go longer? Or, you know, are they kind of making a dent along the way uh, in the resilience of the market? I think those are the questions, Carl, that we're going to have to wait and see for the next few months to, to answer. Yeah. Mike, I did want to get you on two two questions this morning. One is this uh, B of A report on flow yeah. um, that flows to into stocks in the past five months have exceeded uh, the prior 12 years. Uh, the Reuters has a good piece on that. That's one question. The other question for me is 
when the VIX has been in this kind of collapse that we've seen the last couple of days below 17 yesterday, why does the market feel, uh, I guess, defensive on a relative basis when you've got that thing going down so much? Right. Well, in terms of flows, I think it just accentuates that this is now a very, very well-embraced bull market. And retail, institutional, all around, I think equity allocations are very full. Now, one of the big talking points of the bulls in prior years was that, hey, nobody really believes this. Net flows into equities have been very weak. They've not kept pace with the bull market. So that's bullish because you have this marginal imagined buyer out there who's going to throw money in. I think that's going away. Uh, You're in a different type of phase where maybe you're going to build toward an even more exuberant bull market and people feel as if that they want to chase it. Uh, So I don't think you can argue anymore that people are underexposed to stocks. The Goldman Sachs global risk appetite gauge was pretty much near a high very recently. It's institutional as well as retail. In terms of uh, in terms of the VIX, I mean, I think it does tell you that it's a more normalizing market. It's a slower paced market. One of the reasons the VIX is going down is because of the rotations, because you're seeing one group of stocks like growth go up on a day when value corrects. And that just sort of suppresses volatility at the uh, S&P level. And that uh, acts as a drag on VIX. You would argue that above 20 for a year is a long stretch to go at a historically high level for VIX. At some point, it gets too low and complacent. Probably 16 is not that level for the VIX. Yeah. Oh, so people wondered if it would ever, ever get below 20. Yeah. And, and then it finally did. Um, so 10 uh, year, 1675. And obviously, uh, equity is doing what they're doing at the open. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Happy Friday. This is a very modest reaction to a hotter PPI. Remember what happened to stocks in February, uh, particularly tech stocks, really got slammed on concerns about uh, higher inflation, higher rates. That's not happening really today. Many traders feel that worrying about inflation is not a big money-making move right now. Now, let's take a look at the sectors. Now, you'd think uh, on a day like today, rates up. Oh, so the reflation trade, the banks would do better, energy would do better, industrials would do better, and tech would be down in a notable way. Well, it's tech's down, but not much at all. It's a very, very modest reaction. Just take a look at some of the mega cap tech, tech names here today. And you can see, I mean, all of them started fractionally to the downside, the Apples and the Microsofts and the uh, Avagos of the world, the KLA 10 core, all weaker. But this is a pretty modest reaction uh, to a rise in rates and what's perceived to be uh, hotter inflation numbers. High growth stocks as well, Kathy Wood stocks, whatever you want to call them, also started to the downside. But again, fairly modest reaction in the overall markets uh, to these stocks. Uh, again, uh, they had a nice run uh, in the later part of this week here. Meantime, big start uh, to earnings uh, next week. Uh, on the 14th with J.P. Morgan will be starting. Uh, and these are quite strong numbers here. These are big changes from January. First quarter numbers expected to be up 24 percent. Second quarter numbers up 54 percent. Again, these numbers have been going up for the past couple of months. There's a couple of big issues, including what we saw today, that's going to hit. Number one, of course, is concerns about higher rates uh, and higher inflations. Uh, and that is already starting to come through in terms of Concerns about lower margins due to higher costs. We have already seen Kimberly Clark and Smucker raise prices on higher costs. So food companies have already been reporting some higher costs. The question is, of course, is this transitory? Finally, a great question, Carl, to discuss here is last year we didn't get much guidance. This year they're expecting a lot more guidance. But some people are saying, you know, CEOs ought to seize the opportunity to specifically provide less numeric guidance. This has been debated for years, Carl. A lot of CEOs don't like being pinned down like this. And a lot are saying maybe, maybe this is an opportunity to reset 
the expectations around guidance. Good debate point, Carl. Back to you. All right, Bob. We'll talk to you in a bit, uh, Bob Bassani. What a morning Rick Santelli has had. Let's get to Rick. Absolutely, Carl. You know, 42 years I've been in this business, sometimes a trader, but lately, for the last 20-plus on CNBC, trying to share some of the market news with plenty of the viewers. I've never seen anything like this. And very quickly, let's just put a, a face on all the numbers all in a row. Up 1% on headline, second largest ever. Up 0.7% when you strip out food and energy, second highest ever. If you look at the uh, trade number, up 6 tenths, second highest number ever. 4.2 year over year headline. Uh, that's the second highest number ever. And the last two are both up 3.1%. Uh, one, of course, is ex-food and energy year over year, ex-food and energy with trade year over year. Both of those are tied for the all-time highest. So they were hot. And Bob's right. The reaction wasn't huge. Look at a 24-hour chart of 10s and realize at a 167 yield, we're up five on the day. We're down five on the week. So it's five versus five. And most of the upside that we're experiencing now happened around 3 in the morning Eastern when the European markets open. Look at a two-day of 10s. You really want to watch it in deference to yesterday's high yields. Boy, did we snap back quick from the low 160s. Yesterday was a two-week low-yield close. And if we look at this from the weekly perspective, you can clearly see it's been mostly a drift-down week. But, boy, we snapped back fast. Foreign exchange, here's a two-day dollar index. And once again, just like treasuries, you want to watch it in light of yesterday's highs. The dollar is trying to come back a bit. It's having a down week. And finally, one of the reasons it's having a down week is because the euro currency had such a strong week. This is the end of March. Look at the euro currency. What a snapback from under 118. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, when we come back, riding the recovery, shares of Snap-on trading in at all-time high. And the CEO is going to join us in a moment. Shares of Snap-on hitting an all-time high this week. The company benefiting from inflows into the industrial sector, along with the broader reopening of the economy. Joining us this morning is Snap-on's chairman and CEO, Nick Pinchuk. Nick, uh, great to see you again. Uh, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Carl, how are you doing? <laughs> doing great. And, and, and so grateful to talk to you because... I mean, what a time for your business. You got the economy reopened. You got the ISM manufacturing number near a four decade high. And yet all these headlines about supply chain and labor availability. And now this PPI number running hot today. I wonder how you're processing it. Yeah, look, look, supply chain, you know, PPI, it's always something. This is how they pay managers to manage over this. <laughs> this is a great time, you know. Really, I think, you know, people say the stock's up. I'm saying, uh, you know, if they told me the stock was going to be up, I'd say no kidding, Sherlock. You know, we showed uh, great resilience, a V-type recovery where our people, this kind of industry, the essential industry, shocked at first, accommodated it to it, to it and came up. So demonstrating the kind of resilience that our industry was that allowed us to pay dividends every quarter from 1939, never reducing it. And the other thing about it is, generally, what holds our growth is our capability to take advantage, you know, to, to sell more through those vans. It's like a knothole. And in the third and fourth quarter, we demonstrated that through the use of social media, with some of those assisting that direct sales, we expanded that. And if you think about it, people are going to drive cars more after the pandemic than before because they don't like shared transportation. So things are looking up, you know, and our stock actually looks good. I'm, I'm looking for more because our multiples still don't compare to our, our less than our com comparables. 
Right. So if, if the headache for you is not necessarily a production supply chain issue or a cost issue or a labor issue, is it a tax issue? Are you worried about the conversation well, there's, that's there's, there's heated up this week? I mean, the thing is that the taxes, you, I think you had Jay Timmons on yesterday. He knows that, you know, he was talking about taxes. We're happy about infrastructure. In fact, the idea about in- infrastructure, you know, we, we somewhat like a piece of the bill because it talks about upskilling the American workforce. And we've said for a long time that these essential workers are, are the, the life of our, of, our, of, our, of our nation. You know, they've kept us alive, kept us from uh, disintegrating during, the, uh, during this, this COVID crisis. And the idea of training them and getting more into that, into that sector will reduce inequality and make Americans prosper. But um, corporate taxes asymmetrically hit manufacturing. You know, if you think about it, manufacturing, Snap-on isn't like this because we're both a manufacturer and a distributor. So we can price. That's one of the things we can do. But if you're a manufacturer, you're competing with offshore people who don't have the same cost base. So basically, you're, you're under, if your cost base goes up and your, your tax rate now is not competitive with the OECD, then that's a difficulty. You know, I love it when you're on, when you're on programs and uh, people are on programs and they say, hey, manufacturers, companies got to pay their fair share. What's the definition of fair share? I would say the definition is above the OECD, and that's where it is now. And the whole idea, what's going to happen is distribution will be able to price because they have no offshore competition. So taxing corporations asymmetrically burdens manufacturers. Uh, I think Jay said a million jobs are going to be lost. I don't know if that num- I, don't, I think that's his number. But look, what's going to happen is you're going to see a shift of jobs from those high paying jobs to service jobs. You like service jobs? Vote for tax increases for corporations. Nick, you mentioned that, um, you know, it's intuitive. People are going to drive more uh, once they get out and about and vaccinated. Uh, what else in terms of the bigger picture factors are important for your business? You're seeing new car sales actually pretty much click toward uh, a record annual pace, but also used car pricing surge. So obviously tremendous demand for vehicles. What is how does that translate into either miles driven or the need for service? Look, new car, new, new car sales don't make too much difference to us. What makes a difference is change in the car park. So what's happening is, you know, they're changing the technologies. This has kept going and it's driving our businesses. So this will work pretty well. You know, I think, you know, people worry about electric vehicles. If the president tomorrow said we're going to go to electric vehicles, I'm going to mandate 50 percent electric vehicles, I would kiss them because it would drive a lot of change for our business. We would sell different tools at the same time we were selling uh, the internal combustion engines. And so that is really what drives our, uh, our businesses forward. You know, I was out yesterday in a, uh, with a uh, franchisee on his van talking to him about people in the field. I was at a factory in Louisville talking to people. And the interesting thing about the economy is the economy, it's a sort of a two-tier economy. The people of work are primed and pumped to go forward. And it's, I think this is useful to hear is that they are confident because they've been at their jobs every day. And they got shocked at first, but they accommodated. They learned how to accommodate the virus. So they're not going to, in the words of the WHO, they're not going to get shocked again. And so they're confident that whatever <laughs> happens, spikes or not, things are going to go forward. Uh, and then they're looking at this and saying, hey, things are only getting better. It's like they're watching Brady drive for a touchdown down the field. That's what they're seeing. So they have this, this positive view. So I think at the grassroots level, the economy is going to keep going. Bigger companies are a little more troubled by things like tax right. and inflation. So you kind of have that two-tier. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You weren't talking about the World Health Organization there. You were talking about the band. I like that, Nick. Um, right. Let me, yeah, um, right. I, chip, I forgot about that. The chip, 
Yeah, the chip shortage. Uh, you know, 25% of your business is software. Obviously, automotive right now, we're seeing slowdowns in production of new vehicles. Is it impacting you at all? Are you keeping an eye on no, that? No, not Does right it have now. We've been able to. You, know, you guys do? Yeah, famous last words, you know. Right now, we seem to have a clear view. I, maybe we're not big enough to make a difference, you know. So so we're in, a, we're in a good situation, at least for a quarter or two. You know, we don't talk about, we don't give guidance. Uh, you know, knock on wood. Probably tomorrow I'll be on to you. I'll be talking about this and saying, oh, it's tough. But we'd have to manage over that. You know, we have such a wide range of pro- uh, products. We have 80,000 SKUs. So we have a lot to sell to customers no matter what. And one particular product line isn't that important to us. Our diagnostics are great because some of them wield a 200 billion data uh, uh, record database that really helps uh revolutionize the uh, the repair of cars. But right now, we see ourselves having a supply. But if that happens, if we have a difficulty supply, like I said, it's always something we'll manage over that. This is the kind of thing that happens. You talk about inflation. I know that Rick, Rick Santelli, the great truth sayer, was on TV uh, with you this morning talking about inflation, you know. But I'm sitting here saying, hey, wait a minute. The ports are jammed up. The steel prices are going up. Yoo-hoo, inflation's going to happen. One of the good things is we can price for it. That's key. Uh, that is that, that's the whole margin discussion we have every day, Nick. Uh, it's so great having you. you. You bring great color to big questions. Uh, look forward to next time. Thanks. Have a good weekend. All right. All right. Thanks, Carl. You too. All right. Uh, as we head to a break, sense. let's take a look at the S&P 500 uh, biggest gainers of the week so far. You see Norwegian Cruise Line and Carnival, uh, two of the top five. So obviously a reopening theme as long as as well as those growth stocks, Twitter and PayPal. Squawk on the street. Be right back. So many cross currents this week. Let's get to Santoli for a final market thought this hour. Yeah, Carl, we got, you know, S&P kind of pinned pretty close to 4,100. It's been a new record high. It's been a grind. The big complaint, I think, this week as the market has kind of slowed down into a lower gear has been that it hasn't been that broad. This push higher has been fewer stocks uh, leading. So maybe there's been a little bit of a spread between what the average stock's doing and the, and the uh, major indexes. It's, you know, valid to say that that might be, uh, might be an issue over time if it really does widen out that way. But, you know, otherwise, it's, it just proves that this market has stayed resilient and supportive based on uh, this rotation that we've seen. I mean, it's kind of like 2017 in a way, uh, at least so far, where it just seems like it's pretty relentless, even if it's not a lot of oomph behind uh, behind the move in terms of buying pressure every single day. Today, you get the re-rotation because banks are leading uh, and uh, and some of the cyclicals while the, the NASDAQ 100 type names back off. So uh, getting stretched, maybe building towards some kind of a, a short-term overshoot, but very tough to say why today would be the day that uh, this pattern fails. Yeah. Uh, as Pisani said earlier in the hour, uh, earnings season is going to be interesting, especially yeah. given some of the unanswered binary questions uh, that uh, that we're going to be looking for or answers we're going to be looking for in the, in the color commentary. Mike, thanks for the help today. Right. Good to see you. Uh, Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. When we come back, the latest on the Amazon union vote as we await some results there. And the chairman of Viking as the cruise industry looks to set sail amid a ramp up in vaccinations. Dow record high and S&P record high, 4102. We're back in a moment. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.